Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past the future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com backslash startup. Our guest today is Soraya Darabi, general partner at Trail Mix Ventures, where she focuses on the future of living well. Previously, she worked at the New York Times, co-founded Food Spotting, which was acquired by OpenTable, and Zadie. Some of her investments include Class Tag, The Wing, and Alleyoop. So many insights on this episode as Soraya shares her amazing experiences both as a founder and investor. So without further ado, here's Soraya. Hey, Soraya, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. How are you, Mike? Doing really well. What attracted you first to media and then becoming an entrepreneur? Well, I didn't know that entrepreneurism was a real job, uh, first and foremost. <laughs> so I um, I majored in what I thought was interesting at the time. Uh, I still think it's interesting. I went to Georgetown and I, I was an English major with a concentration in journalism. And while there, I had um, the lucky break to intern for the WashingtonPost.com. So I worked for the WashingtonPost.com and I was actually also working for Sony Music, different, different aspects of media, I suppose. And I noticed two things were happening simultaneously, like almost in parallel, and, and we call it convergence now. But Sony, all of the music was being digitized. So they would send me boxes of, of CDs every month to play at local radio stations, college radio stations. I'd go to Howard and American and GW and, and Georgetown and say, hey, play this Tori Amos or John Mayer song. And everyone's like, that's cool. Where's the MP3? And I'd report that back to Sony and they're like, oh, right, right. And then I uh, received uh, an internship at the same time, which I was also very fortunate to have. The Sony job, by the way, was a dream. And I, I interned at the WashingtonPost.com and I noticed that a lot of the reporters I was becoming friendly with on Bagel Mondays uh, were asking me to help them understand what RSS stood for, how to better enhance their real-time news and journalism. So I moved to New York after college and began working at Condé Net, which is what it was called at the time. It's Condé Nast Digital now for the various websites across communications and marketing. Serendipitously, uh, a few months after I began that job, Wired Magazine acquired Reddit. And it was then that um, everything started to make sense to me because the Reddit founders walked into Condé Nast. They were my age. Uh, they were cooler than me. They got to wear hoodies where I, I was wearing, you know, the four inch heels that was kind of like the Condé uniform at the time. And I was really a geek at heart. I still am. Started asking them all these questions about what they were building and, and realized that what, what they had created had the potential to truly change and transform media as we knew it. So I would say it was at that point in my life, age 22, when I became truly obsessed with how media and technology were colliding. And then the New York Times job, which is where I'll end, you brought up, came pretty quickly thereafter. So two years after I worked at Condé Nast Digital, I moved to the New York Times, and I was fortunate enough to be the first manager of social media at the New York Times. Talk to me a little bit about your founding journey and what led you to eventually switching and starting a trail mix. The New York Times world opened me up to all sorts of new possibilities. I, I, as I mentioned, from age 23 to 26, I was the manager of social media and digital partnerships for them. And that warranted an air ticket a few times a year to San Francisco 
where I'd be knocking on the doors of, you know, Facebook back when they had the original office in Palo to, you know, being the first media brand on Twitter and beta to being the first partner channel on YouTube and to partnering with a lot of startups that weren't well-known household names at the time. I think we were one of the first media companies to work with Tumblr. I remember giving uh, David Karp the tour of the newsroom back when we were both in our 20s. And we were, um, you know, the earliest, among the earliest users of Foursquare, mainly because my friends, Dennis and Naveen, founded Foursquare and, and they said, hey, do you want to test this out in beta? We need a BlackBerry beta user. So it was just a funny, funny time and place to be at the intersection of media and social media. But it opened up my eyes to the fact that these young guns, uh, most of whom were men, but my age and very friendly and, and, and really brilliant, how they were, again, transforming the communication style that, that I was accustomed to communicating in. And I wanted to, to learn what they knew. So I quit my job to work for a cloud computing startup in Dumbo, Brooklyn, of which uh, one of the co-founders, Darshan, now works with us at TMV, our venture capital fund. So all things come full circle. But this cloud computing startup was chock full of really brilliant people. That's the easiest way to describe it. And we were you know, arbitraging Amazon Web Storage and creating new verticals to sell uh, enterprise style into various industries. And it was exactly what I always dreamed of, as opposed to leveraging new social media tools for, for communication and marketing purposes of media companies. Now I was behind the driver's seat and, and talking to engineering teams about building said products. So that's what got me acclimated into the world of entrepreneurship. Um, that company was sold to Facebook pre-IPO, which is great for the founders and, and, and earliest team members. Um, the mafia that I worked with uh, went on to build some incredible companies and actually, interestingly, two different VCs, no, three, three, three VCs came out of that era in New York. So really good time and place to be in the New York tech ecosystem. We were down the street from the original Etsy office. Uh, we shared space with Venmo when they were first being incubated in Birchbox. It was just awesome. And then uh, co-founded with some friends in San Francisco, an app that helped people discover food based on their geolocation. So Using the original Foursquare API, we helped people discover great dishes based on their location and specifically dishes, not restaurants. The app was called Food Spotting, and we grew to many, many, many users in our heyday. It was named Apple and Wired's App of the Year. And within a three-year time span, the company sold to OpenTable. OpenTable then sold to Priceline and part of the Priceline roll-up a year and a half later. So those liquidity events then led to me becoming an angel investor. Now I'm six years or seven years past where I began with my career. And um, as an angel investor, I noticed a couple of things. One is the, the types of deals that I was most passionate about were typically underfunded. So I've always been really passionate about health and well-being. I'm the daughter of a public health professor. And so some of the companies that I thought were intuitive from day one have very public stories about you know having a more difficult time attracting capital. And realized over many years, so I'm now an angel investor in over 20 companies and an advisor to many as well, often advisor investor pre-trail mix and at trail mix now just TMV gets my capital, but, um, but had a, a pretty good track record, you know, it landed with a 172% realized IRR on those SPVs, for instance, and um, had to ask a friend who was a venture capitalist if that was a good track record, <laughs> because I didn't know. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, five, five, five exits in, I, I sent my track record to a friend and I said, hey, is this any good? And he just kind of scoffed at me for being an idiot for asking uh, because I didn't realize that, you know, major VCs have something like at best a 15% IRR for their first fund. 
And what I had created was basically a mini fund of 20 companies. So took that track record to a friend, Marina Hachipateras, whom I've known since we went to uh, Georgetown together as undergrads, which means we've known each other for 17 years. And she had the most remarkable career. She um, worked for a 200-year-old maritime shipping business, which happens to be her family's business, and modernized them, um, helped them become more environmentally friendly, and became the vice chair of the Environmental Intertanko Committee, informing the IMO of best practices for maritime mobility. And she became an expert on all things electronic vehicles and the way in which maritime's converging with tech. And we sat down over dinner one night because she was telling me the story of how she helped lead the international roadshow for her family's maritime company, Dorian. It's uh, LPG on the New York Stock Exchange now. And how she raised $135 million to bring that company, which has like a market cap of a billion, into the public sphere. And I was blown away. And it sort of dawned on both of us that, you know, I had really good deal flow and a track record in angel investments that materialized. And she had institutional investor relations experience and relationships and could teach me a thing or two about um, professionalizing an outfit. So we got together in 2016 as partners and launched TMV Fund One. That's amazing. And I know you touched on it. One of your focuses or, or, or maybe your, your main focus is the care economy. I wanted to know just how, you, how are you thinking about care today and, 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 and what that actually means? So you hit the nail on the head. That's one of my favorite categories to invest in. And, and the care economy to us, us expands well beyond healthcare. We realized that when we started to talk about consumer or enterprise healthcare, people would want to put you in a bucket in venture capital. Are you investing in Mars shot cures for cancers? Gosh, I wish I knew how to diligence pharma companies, but we don't. Are you investing in hardware? We could, probably not our sweet spot. Um, although, you know, we have aura rings and Fitbits in my house. Where we determined we would be most applicable to help uh, founders along, we're in underserved, undercapitalized, and underventured arenas like non-traditional healthcare. That would be functional medicine, microbiome and gut health, which is growing substantially year over year. Women's health, which is now clumped into femtech. But you know, just five years ago, I was reading a, a well-known healthcare reporter for CNBC uh, tweet that she said, remember when four years ago, investors said to me, they didn't think women's health was a big market. And she wrote, duh, only half the population. These are the kinds of, of conversations we have at TMV all the time. You know, why, why have Roe and Hims raised so much capital, but it's really hard to find a direct-to-consumer birth control company? You know, why is it that reproductive uh, and fertility preservation is so expensive, which is what led us to invest in Kind Body, which is, you know, more affordable healthcare for women in, in, in many respects. So care economy for us, it's a $7.5 trillion market, no big deal. It encompasses personal care, health care, child care, elder care, and community care. And a lot of the core customers in what we call the care economy are women. And we view women as marketing multipliers. And as women GPs ourselves, our team is half women, half men, but you know we're, we're a women-owned and led fund. We thought maybe we could be helpful to the predominantly women founders who were building companies in the care space. In our first fund, that included backing Lindsay Allman, who created Umbrella, which is a task rabbit for citizens over the age of 60. And in, I mentioned Kind Body by Gina Partasi, who's amazing. We um, have invested four times over in Dr. Robin Burson and her company, Parsley Health. Uh, we were among uh, the earliest investors in Work Bravely, which is mental health care for, for corporate America. So those are some examples of companies in fund one that we were excited about. And in our second fund, 
our very first investment was in a business called Thrive Inside, started by Richard Chen in Santa Clara, California. And this is a microbiome and gut health company that is, focuses on diagnostics, analytics, and testing. So it's a really, really, really exciting space to play in. That's Care Economy. And then, as I alluded to, we also invest in the future of work, and we invest in tech-enabled sustainable solutions. So at TMV, three categories. They're large enough to basically change every facet of our lives, but it's specific enough for founders to know when to come speak to us. I'm curious about the future of work. I've talked to past investors that have said that in order to build a venture-backable business or, or a venture-scalable business, it's okay to be located in a secondary and tertiary market in the beginning. But when you think about scale, if it's software business, you really have to be in the coast. I know you have a few of your portfolio companies that are in the secondary and tertiary markets, but wanted to know how you think about this. I hate sweeping generalizations. I think whenever investors make sweeping generalizations, they're just inviting people to prove them wrong. And sweeping generalizations give me a chip on my shoulder. So I'm glad they make these proclamations so I can be like, ah, what? No. So we love investing on the coast and we love secondary markets for us. We're uh, geographically blind. Uh, we have invested in companies that are really traditional kind of Silicon Valley plays. I I'm proud to be personally an investor in clockwise.ai, which is a future of work company focused on automated calendaring uh, for engineering teams predominantly, but sales teams and products teams as well. And that's a company that is rooted in San Francisco, backed by Bain and Excel and Greylock. You know, your, your classic kind of future of work 101 business. And for Clockwise, which is brilliantly built by Matt Martin and team, you know, that makes sense because they're looking for supremely sophisticated engineering talent. Specifically, it's hard to find engineers who understand AI. So I understand why a venture capitalist might make a proclamation like, for future of work, you need to be on the coast. But... It doesn't ring true across the board for TMV because just today, in fact, we invested, I can't name the company yet, but I can tell you the space. We invested in a future of work company um, out of Atlanta, Georgia and Notre Dame campus. So it's, it's a Midwest kind of South play. And what they're tackling is a really unique change in the system whereby NCAA athletes for the first time are legally permitted to receive payments, basically promotional payments and sponsorship for their full-time work being revenue generators for the universities in which they play. Like I learned in my diligence process for this business that the highest paid administrators at most universities across the country are not provosts or deans or presidents or, or vice presidents. They're the coaches of the football and the basketball team. They make millions of dollars a year, which makes sense because they they're basically creating an economy for the school there, you know, especially at a school like Notre Dame, but the athletes until this year were never permitted to make a dime. However, thanks to social media, they are becoming micro macro influencers. So this future of work company that we became really excited to lead the seed round for, and, and just in fact today did, came out of a problem set that former athletes themselves faced, which is they were sort of micro celebrities on campus, but they didn't know how to monetize that fame and not all of them could afford not to. <laughs> so they sort of built a system for themselves. Anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying that's a non-traditional, non-obvious geography to build a future of work and or gaming company out of, but that's precisely what they did. And thanks for diving into that company. I think that that sounds really interesting. I went to um, USC and what my professor said is, tell me the top three earners at, at um, USC. And so it's, uh, of course, the head football coach, 
the president of the university. But the third, it's actually the head of the marching band. What? That's super interesting. I know you invest in both enterprise and consumer, about 50-50 as you are talking before. Talk to me a little bit about, about your difference in diligence between the two. So we approach the beginning of the diligence for enterprise and consumer fairly similarly. Um, it begins with a founder first mentality. At TMV, there's five partners, three VPs and, and two GPs. Uh, we have seven exits between us, one IPO, but that doesn't mean we haven't had our fair share of failures. So we look for founders who have a good head on their shoulders, as I mentioned, a lot of integrity and um, a sense of the market they're trying to accomplish, but a realistic perspective of how they're going to get there. And that's character assessment and that's subjective, but it's how we have to begin as early stage investors. And then we look for more subjective characteristics like coachability, because we try to be really value add and hands-on in the beginning, especially in the first 18 months of an organization's lifespan. So we look for founders who really want that. They want to learn from us. Not everyone does. There's a lot of founders out there who are incredibly capable and autonomous, and they have this leave me alone mentality. They're looking for passive checks. That's not really right for us either. Okay, so once we get past the subjective, in terms of um, core metrics, we look for businesses on both consumer and enterprise that are monetizable from day one. If it's a consumer company, it's not necessarily a certain dollar amount in MRR, ARR that we're looking for, but it's some sort of pipeline for how they're going to acquire customers without deep reliance on the Facebook and Google duopoly. We think that's going to be treacherous in the future. And then, you know, to not make this a huge monologue, in enterprise, we look for a pipeline of, um, of clients, of uh, businesses, both low-hanging fruit, medium and high-hanging fruit, that would be possible and achievable for the founders to land. Some sort of subject matter expertise um, in sales. And because we think in, in enterprise businesses, especially CEOs are ultimately CSOs, chief sales officers. So you can't come to us saying, you know, I built a direct-to-consumer company selling eyewear, and now what I really want to do is be a fintech company for managed care providers. <laughs> like we, we need to see you have some sort of SME, subject matter expertise, that lends well to the business pipeline that you're developing. And we look for founders on the enterprise side that are completely aware of their vulnerabilities because enterprise is so technical and so sales-driven. So we typically don't invest in solo founder enterprise businesses. We look for a trifecta, a chief product officer, a chief engineering officer, and, and a chief sales officer, male, female team, ideally, because diversity is very important to us. That would be the sweet spot in terms of like cursory first look diligence. But down the road, I'd say diligence tends to be very straightforward. It's you know multiple reference checks for anyone who owns more than 5% of a cap table. It's deep studying of the industry that they're building their business in. So I remember meeting Henry the Dentist back when Justin Joffe was pitching at the Harvard Business School alumnus pitch competition. And he was making a great analogy about how Henry was so similar to Drybar. That to me really stood out. I was like, dentistry is like getting your hair blown out. But then he talked about how dentistry is cumbersome and people don't really like going to the dentist. So it's not a consumer game. He was going to sell his dentistry offerings into businesses and to bring a mobile dentistry to office parks. And I thought that was a Eureka idea. So with enterprise and consumer alike, we're always looking for Eureka ideas. I've had on investors that, you know, some of them focus on consumer or, or generalists that aren't thematic. They want the entrepreneur to really bring them. The, the job of the entrepreneur is, is the insight brings them into the future. Other investors that, you know, maybe are very thematic that 
are thinking about the future very intensely and and you're trying to find maybe companies that maybe match their their thesis would love to like learn how you think about it because your themes are very like you know very broad massive industries like like trillion dollar industries right but just want to know how you think about that that relationship between what the entrepreneur needs to bring to the table okay it's a really excellent question um and a thoughtful one i think it's honestly always going to be both. And again, it, it's it's when an investor says we only do X that I tend to be skeptical. At the beginning and middle of each year, as a fun exercise, our team writes down predictions. It's not necessarily informing our theses, so to speak, but it's an opportunity for us to just kind of do what we love doing most as entrepreneurs. We dream up ideas that we wish existed. And we don't try to put a dollar sign around these ideas. Um, we just say, wouldn't it be great if and we tend to limit these ideas within our three core categories. So I'm not asking them to come up with like, again, that, that moonshot cure for cancer pharma company, because that would be great if it existed. But um, in the past, we, we've come up with ideas like, ah, oh, Henry the dentist was so great for dentistry and it's worked out well for our company. Why don't we do the same thing for dog grooming? Because many of us own animals on the team. And what then ends up happening is you tweet out the idea. So that same day, that we did the exercise, I posted on Twitter, does anyone know of a mobile grooming company that comes to your home and I can order it on an app? Boom, two decks appeared in my inbox that day. So there is a little bit of premonition in being a VC. Now that's obviously a game. We take it more seriously. So over time we start to hone and cultivate our own ideas and say, well, why do we believe that should exist? What are the market conditions that would allow for it? What are the new technologies that permit such a thing to happen in the world? And then, you know, it's not going to always be as easy as posting on Twitter or LinkedIn. Is anyone building this? Sometimes it comes up in conversation with other VCs. Have you seen anything that's a little too early for you? We like early that you might want to pass along our way. In fact, that happened in Fund One with a conversation with Rebecca Caden at Union Square Ventures. I was telling her about how we, you know, love the logistics aspect of privatized recycling and had recently invested in Gooder out of Atlanta, Georgia, which is like the flex port for excess food solving food waste and food security at the same time. And she said, oh, have you thought about talking to Ryan, the founder of Ridwell in Seattle, which is a privatized recycling business focused on um, making it easier for consumers and soon businesses, so B2B to C, um, to recycle more than just paper or plastic and to have reconnaissance on where their things go. And it was thanks to her saying, this is a company I'm tracking. The founder seems great. Introducing me to Ryan, and then we were the, the first institutional investor in Ridwell. So Ridwell has gone on to raise capital from Freestyle and, and Collaborative Fund, and we're very, very lucky to be a part of their success story. It's got an NPS score of 94 and growing leaps and bounds every month. But um, those, are, those are kind of examples of how we lean into our theses more so than not, but we're also open to serendipity. What's kind of interesting about this is it almost is like you're speaking it into existence in a funny kind of way, whether you're, you're maybe predictions or, or just things you'd like to see, and then you're kind of throwing it out into the ecosystem, whether on Twitter or, or just chatter amongst, you know, different VCs as you did with uh, Rebecca that led you to just different opportunities. I don't, I think it's, it's gotta be from all fronts. I mean, I mentioned clockwise earlier and, you know, I'd be remiss not to mention that this was deal flow 20 plus years in the making because I went to high school with the founder. But, and he was a friend of mine in, in high school. We really didn't keep in touch over the years. And yet we followed each other on social media. And, and he said, you know, hey, um, by the way, would you be interested in, in 
investing in my startup. And when he told me the idea, I just said, yeah, obviously, duh. And it was a, a wire that I made 24 hours later. It's not always that easy with a fund. Now that we have 70, oh my God, LPs, it's a lot of relationships to manage, and we're stewards of capital, it would be irresponsible to not go through a formal DD process. And, you know, our checks are much larger, which makes the deals that we enter into, therefore, more competitive. It's very easy to squeeze an angel check into a deal. It's very difficult to lead a seed round if the company's great. So we take our own premonitions incredibly seriously, and we try to give more than we take. Give and Take is a great book written by Adam Grant. He's an investor and advisor to our Fund One and Fund Two. And um, I really do follow his philosophy. You know, it's about sending deals to other VCs when they're inside or outside of your theses, and then knowing that they'll look out for you in return when the right opportunity strikes their desk. I love that. I know that you said that your due diligence process is pretty straightforward. Wanted to talk specifically about market sizing. I had recently on Eric Paley from Founder Collective, and he was saying how a lot of VCs get actually market size completely wrong. You know, he gave the example back in the day when a Fitbit was was coming to play. He's like, if you look at Fitbit back, like how many folks were actually wearing, you know, wearables? Like, you know, it was really small market. But of course, it obviously grew and it's and, and, and taken off. So how do you think about market sizing? You're, it's funny. First of all, Eric's so fantastic. And um, I'm very lucky that, that he invited us to co-invest with him in ClassTag, which is an ed tech company that's just grown leaps and bounds since COVID in particular began. So think really highly of him and David and Micah and, and Parl and the whole Founder Collective team. Okay, you remind me of a story because when I was starting my second startup, I was obsessed with the iPad. You know, it just recently kind of come out in in modern incarnations. And I remember going through the park in, in um, Washington Square Park with a well-known investor. And I was pitching him on an idea I had for a geolocation e-commerce app allowing people to shop on their iPads wherever they are. And he pointed to everyone in the park and he said, Soraya, show me one person who's in this park shopping on their iPad and I'll invest in your idea. <laughs> and so it can go both ways, right? Because on the one hand, Fitbit has taken off and, and paved the way for, for instance, this week, Lululemon acquiring Mirror. And then on the other hand, you know, sometimes you have to look around the park, so to speak. So market sizing, I think, should always be done by the partner at the firm that's actually going to lead the deal. It's really not something that you can outsource. You can work on it with your teammates, principals, associates, interns, but it's not, it's not something to outsource. It begins with research and academic-esque research. And you have to, uh, as I mentioned earlier, go beyond you know, your core demographic profile. Um, if something doesn't exist, the idea is nascent, it's a little bit future and forward, then you should ask the founder, um, him or herself, to go out and procure video interviews of people explaining why they want the thing. And even though that's not numerical, it's extraordinarily informative to help you understand the kind of person who would be buying into a particular category. Classic example, of course, is Rent the Runway. When they pitched Highland, they brought videos from Harvard campus of women who said they would love to be able to rent dresses to wear to weddings because it was price and uh, cumbersome to be able to have to buy multiple dresses in a Facebook era when you're taking a photo of yourself at every wedding, you don't want to wear the same dress again and again. And that was probably helpful for them pitching an all-male GP because there was some sort of educational layer to saying, take me outside of you know, your core day-to-day -day and imagine yourself as um, a student or a millennial woman 
who only has a limited budget to buy said dresses. So market sizing is actually, I think, the most fun part of our job, but it's part, it's really anthropological is what I'm trying to say. It's part cultural anthropology, which is going out and speaking to people in the real world and assessing, do they need the thing? And then it's part demography, <laughs> looking at the numbers, looking at statistics and, and trying to understand where have people spent capital before. And then last but not least, at TMV, we always recreate the model before we do a deal. So a founder will always send you their deck, their data room, and a model. And the models are so audacious. People are like, well, in year one, we're going to come close to 800K in revenue. And in year two, <laughs> and then they just like arbitrarily make up a number that seems impossible to work backwards from. So we take the time to recreate the wheel, so to speak, and to say, if we were starting out this business ourselves, how would we model it out? And sometimes that leads to the most intricate and interesting conversations you could possibly have with a founder. I didn't know that uh, Rent the Runway story and, and and looking for like video footage from future customers. I'm just repeating what I heard when they were on stage at L2, Scott Galloway's old conference. We were all pitching or on stage at the same time. And I'm a, I'm a big startup nerd. I, I listen to these stories and I scribble down notes. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, that's brilliant. What a great way to convince someone that a market exists. Are you finding it harder to find conviction with founders since you're having to meet them virtually? Too soon to say. So I, I tweeted this morning, like, I'll be honest with you, we totally slowed down in Q2 and we're back in action with a vengeance in Q3. And it got some nice, you know, reception because I think a lot of VCs are saying we're hyperactive, we're open for business, we're in market. But then it's a little contradictory to the data that journalists are posting in terms of exactly how active is the market right now. You can be hyperactive in taking meetings, but are you hyperactive in writing checks? So candidly, we've only done two deals this year, um, but that's still on track for us. We try to do four a year. And at TMV, just to give you a sense, our, our seed checks are between 500K and, and 1.5 million. And this company that we um, invested in just this morning, um, we had met once in person just before social distancing began. But then the remainder of the diligence all of our references and closing the deal happened virtually. So that was a first for us. Actually, no, that's not true. Ridwell was the first for us um, in fund one. So we're completely open to it, um, but I wouldn't say that we're experts in closing deals virtually because there's something missing. This, this business is not all science, it's really art. It's the art of conversation and relationships and the best part is going to coffee with a founder and just listening. I think this is where my journalism background comes into play. So I really like listening to their stories and trying to understand what are they solving and how can, not just how can we be helpful, the classic VC tagline, but like, how can we actually move the needle forward or can we? And then you have to be humble and honest with yourself. As a firm, we've seen amazing opportunities cross our desks in deals that we know are going to be phenomenal. And yet, we ask ourselves, are we the team that could actually move the needle forward for them? And if you can't look at yourself honestly in the mirror and say yes, then why do the deal at all? But there are other instances where everything just clicks. I was thinking about you know, Richard Lynn of Thrive and, and the fact that we had a microbiome and gut health theses before CB Insight said it was this, you know, growing by a billion dollar year over year, TAM. Um, we had already invested in Parsley Health, which focuses a lot on gut health as the root cause for so many of our ailments. So we came to the table with Richard having, you know, a solid thesis around what he was building and 
domain expertise in working with startups of his ilk. And I know that's what got us over the finish line because our co-investor was Tim Connors of Pivot North, who was the earliest investor in Chime and, and Looker and No Big Deal, spin out of Sequoia. So we were really punching above our weight <laughs> as a small East Coast fund. But when you find the right deal, it all just clicks. That makes sense. I guess that's one of the the main advantages of having a fund that's a bit more thematic, right? Well, we're 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 sneaky thematic because as you as you alluded to before, our 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 addressable markets are so massive. It's like the GDP of Europe and Africa combined. But but you can also just you know post online any founders working on something in the future of work and care. And you'll get kind of thesis-driven <laughs> deal flow. You can't be you can't be so linear that you block yourself out of really great opportunities. I, I really like learning about that approach. It's just really really interesting. Has working from home, not going to the office, has that been a bit more more difficult with your team? With my team, no. With my fiance, yes. He's he's day trading right now, and and it's fifteen minutes before four o'clock, and so. Like, God forbid I ask him if he's hungry for lunch because <laughs> I'm just joking. I, I miss my office. I, I can use my office before the market's open and after the market's closed, but otherwise I'm Skyping from the living room uh, or Zooming or hangouting. Um, with my team, it is actually been pretty great. We were anti-Slack before COVID. Now we're Slack converts. We've, you know, we were not always as diligent as we could have been with daily standups. And now we're pretty focused on making sure that we're seeing each other face-to-face -face on Zoom every day. Um, but we were remote before this began. Our partner, Evan, lives in Chicago. Our partner, Julia, splits her time between New York and Miami. Um, Keita, who does platform for TMV, is at her second year of Harvard Business School. So she's in Cambridge. So I think you know we were used to being socially distanced. We were intuitive because back around March 11th, just before social distancing began in New York, we saw the writing on the wall. and We've always had a month to month lease for an office in a space called Spaces in New York. And that made sense to us as a fund because we invest in temporary spaces as a fund. And so why would we have <laughs> a long 30 year lease for ourselves? And so we just hit pause on our lease and said, we'll come back to you in 2021 and, um, and haven't looked back since. So there are a lot of venture capital funds I know that got themselves into trouble because they had really expensive space um, to continue to, to capitalize. And that was just not our problem. Our problem is really about rapport. Like we miss having lunch together. We miss those kind of like water cooler breaks where it's a little bit of just, you know, talking shop and a little bit of catching up socially. I think that's, that's what's missing in, in COVID. And the way we've rectified that is with our founders, we've done Zooms that are happy hours where you know, we'll Venmo them money to order dinner or buy some drinks. And we try to not make it clinical or like work. We try to actually catch up with them as human beings and each other because um, you know, the, the informal part of our business is, is what's lacking right now. Got it. I know that diversity in venture is obviously a hot topic right now, uh, given everything that's happened. What are some things that you think should, uh, should happen in order to increase backing founders that, that come from more diverse backgrounds? The, the answer begins by looking at yourself, man in the mirror style. You know, in fund one, we had a team that included two male partners, two female partners, a male and a female intern. And that was it. That was, it was a small team for fund one. And out of 25 companies that we invested in, 51% of the founders were women. 
and 11% were African-American, 9% Latinx, 9% LGBTQ. I could go through all the stats. Now, not every stat was 50-50 because that would be impossible, but our, our demographic statistics are leaps and bounds better than most VC firms. And also we're a double minority GP, women owned and women held holding company, women run managed fund. So we look at it as just investing in the way that we see the world to exist. We invest in businesses that reflect the America we live in and the America we that we love. It's almost like the question should be inversed. You know, it's, it's why is it so hard for Silicon Valley to fork over capital to the people who are clearly going to persevere harder, the underdogs who need and want this more than anything else. And I think part of it is laziness. A lot of VCs don't leave their backyard or their zip code to invest. I think a lot of it is just cronyism. And it's so much easier to kind of co-invest with the same four funds you've always co-invested with because those are your bros and you golf together and their sons work for your fund and you all went to Harvard together. I think it's it's also it's 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 also just kind of like looking at data a little too much. Well, 85% of the time when we back businesses at this stage from and then you're not leaving yourself open to what the future could look like and really reading into that data. I'm lucky that I was raised by a demographer. My mother's an academic. And so I know the statistics are subjective. I question every statistic I read. And I think if we were just more open-minded as an industry and stopped calling it DNI and stopped saying that, you know, at the moment you invest in a woman or a person of color, you're an impact investor, that's bullshit. Anyway, you know what that is? Actually, it's funny. We're talking about diversity right now. And all these Slack notifications that are coming through that you hear are from a group uh, called Transact that Marina and I began two years ago for women emerging fund managers. There's 51 of us in the group now. And we began this because it's a very unique journey, not only to be a woman in venture, of which only 9% of partners globally are women. But if you really call that data down, even fewer are decision makers, even fewer own economics of carry, and even fewer own holding company economics. So what you're left with is this really, really small pool of women who own and operate their funds. And I take issue with this because how are we going to change the world if we're not capitalizing people who have the power to, through investment and through venture specifically, catalyze change? So we started Transact two years ago. It was just a group call for four of our friends. Alexia, who used to be the editor-in-chief of TechCrunch and then started Dream Machine, Heather Hartnett of Human Ventures. It was really just a, hey, how, how are you thinking about your back office? Who are you hiring for legal? You know, what, what best practices can I learn and glean from you? And then it exploded. And now this group that you're hearing slacking all day, every day, are women truly helping each other move the needles forward for their businesses. And so we take DNI very seriously at Transact, but for us, it's sort of just like table stakes. It's not even the core competency of what we do. It's just obviously how we should invest in the future to get to garner better returns. That's amazing. And thanks so much for sharing a bit about uh, Transact. One of the things that I know is a bit hotly contested on VCs is about the cold email and about how should you search for warm introduction. I've had a few investors that's like, well, I only do warm introductions because that's a testament to the founder that they can actually find a warm introduction to me, which want to know, want to know like your thoughts about the cold email and about how, you know, not having like a warm introduction to VCs. I have no position on it. Again, it sounds like one of those sweeping statements that I mentioned before that always make me want to put people wrong. See, it seems kind of elitist to me to say that, you know, a warm, I was recently at a dinner for a very prestigious fund of funds 
run by a gentleman whom I admire. I think he's a tremendous investor. And then he said to this group around the table, there are 15 fund managers at the table, I think, and, uh, and all but three of us <laughs> were men. So I like how I said us, but he said, and very proudly, I've met all of the GPs I've backed through other GPs whom I've invested in before. And that's how you generate a network. And the women at the table looked at each other and just went, huh, well, how does that get you a diverse pipeline? Um, because, you know, people tend to want to help people who remind them of themselves. And that's not me speaking for all of mankind. That's just human nature. So we have to break that mold somehow. We have to challenge ourselves to say, well, why would this person be thinking differently? And what can I learn from them? As opposed to why did I not get an introduction from Jim or Sally? And I also think that um, warm introductions, I don't know, err on the side of nepotism in some ways. It's really easy to get a warm introduction from family or family friends, but what if you didn't come from a family that has family friends? So I guess I'm very con. Um, but now that I say that, um, I get cold intros and emails all the time on LinkedIn and Twitter, and I think that's the wrong format. I think that if you're savvy, you can go to our website and find the hi at trailmates.vc email and write a thoughtful, tailored email to us, even using first names, Soraya, Evan, Marina, Darshan, Molly, Julia, Keita, and just say, read something you posted online, thought I'd reach out here. Because we do read hi at trailmix.vc. And to me, that's just one step beyond, you know, the copy and paste message that one might send on social. So I'd say think about your medium, but feel free to reach out to us cold anytime. First of all, thanks for thanks for that. Cause I know that it obviously varies from, from person to person, um, an investor to investor, like some investors um, are fine with the cold DM or- I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think it's just because on social media we're bombarded, right? We have um, a lot of messages there on, on LinkedIn and, and, and Twitter especially. So it's not that we won't see it, it's that we might forget about it. And it just it, it's nice to go that extra step in writing to our formal work emails because that's one way for us to make sure that you know your message is captured. But I hear you, maybe there's some sort of language that we could put on our website that says we do read 100% of the emails that are sent. So what's, what's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? I think there is a hive mind in VC and actually in real time that is being changed. A lot of our perceptions of the world have been challenged tremendously this year because of the global pandemic, because of Black Lives Matter, because of Me Too, because of really brave vocal people standing up for you know, the diversity initiatives that they believe are long overdue in our industry. So I would say it's not so much what would I change, it's just I would keep the evolution moving on. I don't want us to, to look at 2020 and say, oh, remember that year when we thought that was important? That was like a time and a place. Almost like how the green spring on Twitter back in like 2008 era was a moment in time. There was an uprising and people were using social media to create these really kind of bold activist movements in the Middle East. But then, you know, it's not quite the same as in the U.S. where then real reform happened. And so in, in, in VC land, I'd like to see real transformative action change. So what does that mean specifically? I think there's a lot of onus on the part of limited partners, LPs. You know, every VC has an investor base themselves. When we say to founders, we're empathetic to your fundraising experience because we fundraise too, we mean it. We're on the road and we're investing 
in their companies, but then there are LPs who invest in us. And a lot of those LPs don't have diversity mandates. They don't have kind of impact mandates. And that's a shame because would they and could they, this industry would just change naturally. You know, you have to, at the end of the day, everybody has a boss. And if, and if it was imposed on us as opposed to left the GPs goodwill and conscious to invest the way that they've always invested, uh, we wouldn't really see progress. And so I'm pretty passionate about bringing LPs into the conversation and saying, you know, you have so much power and influence. How are you going to wield that to, you know, make the world a better place through capitalism? Yeah, I love that. And by the way, you're capturing, you're capturing me at a good time because most of my LPs are family offices or some fund of funds, but now we're wooing institutions. So I might be much more tight-lipped in the future when, you know, <laughs> um, I'm, not, I'm not biting the hand that feeds me, so to speak. We have, we have one institution, um, but talk to me again in three years and see how conservative I am with my answer. Yeah, exactly. Probably you'll want to delete this episode. What's one company you had the opportunity to invest in, didn't, and in retrospect, wish you did? Oh my God, it's going to sound like such a humble brag, but the answer is really square. I was... Um, beta testing it back when it was called Squirrel and and Jack and Randy were thinking about making the original Swipe and Acorn. Uh, Stitch Fix was started by my friend Katrina Cat Lake. We went to high school together and she told me about the idea when she was just coming out of Harvard Business School. Travis uh, and and Garrett showing me um, SMS Taxi and, and telling me how cool it would be if you could order cars with your phone. I mean, it really does sound like, like hyperbolic humble bragging when I talk about opportunities that I've missed. But it informed me on the kind of investor I wanted to be in the future. And I've been very lucky to have other opportunities to get into some great companies. Amazing. Amazing. Soraya, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Mike. I love the podcast and uh, appreciate your time. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Soraya. I highly recommend following her on Twitter at Soraya Darabi. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.